Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, fan favorite returning guest, Jacob Helberg. Jacob is the author of The Wires of War. Jacob, welcome back to the podcast. Eric, thanks so much for having me. So, so Jacob, we had a couple of previous great episodes, one with just you and, and one with uh, you and, and Keith Raboy. But for, for people who may not be familiar, why don't you give a little bit of uh, your background and what led you to start The Wires of War or led you to write The Wires of War? Sure. So I first came to the tech industry working in the startups in the startup space uh, on a company that uses software to measure and track geopolitical risk. I then went on to join Google's policy team, where I was the in Google's internal point person for global news policies, which very quickly turned into helping advise the company's executives on how to tackle new and emerging issues like foreign interference, misinformation. Eventually, I briefly advised on Project Dragonfly, and very quickly, uh, it came to my attention that the tech industry as a whole was being uh, caught in the crosshairs of very new and emerging geopolitical dynamics. And uh, as time went on, I got involved on the presidential primaries, supporting Pete Buttigieg and helping the camp- helping advise his campaign on foreign policy, and ultimately decided to uh, uh, encourage a broader policy debate on issues that I feel passionate about for personal reasons, but also that I think are important for the country um, that transcend a single company and that really impact the tech industry as a whole and the future of uh, national security for the country. So let's get into the book. Why this book? Why now? What are some of the, what are some of the main ideas you want people to, to, to take from this book? Right now, we're at a critical juncture in time where we have a window of opportunity, uh, the United States, to uh, reverse trends that are not headed in the right direction. Um, we are currently facing the a real risk of a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. We are emerging from 20 years of uh, significant damage that's been done in what I call in the book gray zone conflict from deindustrialization, the deindustrialization of advanced democracies, s- substantial levels of intellectual property theft. Some experts have estimated it at $3 trillion over the course of uh, 10 years between 2008 and, and 2018. In the last few years, we've obviously seen significant uh, cyber attacks conducted against various government agencies like the Office of Personal Management, as well as a number of other agencies, our energy grid. And so we need to decide as a country how we're going to approach and meet this moment. If we are going to uh, reconfigure and have a proactive approach to uh, these issues that we have in our bilateral relationship with China and to a lesser extent with Russia or if we are going to remain in a more reactive posture where we constantly uh, experience cyber attacks, experience the building of islands in the South China Sea and aggressive maneuvers in those parts of the world and are constantly in a more reactive mode. Uh, Part of the, the, the purpose of the book is to obviously explain how these events are connected and are part of a much bigger uh, trend and geopolitical agenda on the part of America's adversaries, and that the the logical conclusion is to have a much more proactive approach to these issues. And that is why I, I refer to this current dynamic as a gray war that requires a proactive approach and a proactive agenda. Let's understand what's happening on the ground before getting into to, to what that agenda could be. To talk about uh, how the gray war is sort of redefining uh, you know, geopolitics, or international politics, and and how that's different from from previous uh, you know cold conflicts. So what we're seeing today is that great powers are increasingly subverting and leveraging technologies that make up our everyday lives. Um, they're doing so to advance their interests and weaken their adversaries in 
uh, what military experts called the ambiguous gray zone between war and peace. It's a state of unpeace, but it doesn't quite rise to the conventional threshold of war. So examples of gray zone attacks include things like impactful hacking attacks. Uh, some people refer to China's military incursions in the Taiwan Strait um, uh, in Taiwan's airspace as gray zone conflict. But for the purpose of the topic of this book, leveraging dual use technologies that are commercial and civilian in nature for geopolitical purposes is the very essence of the, the uh, overarching gray war paradigm that I discussed, espionage, things like that. And because there is an inverse relationship between the degree of destructiveness of a given technology and its practical usability in the conduct of day-to-day geopolitical warfare, we have seen increasingly governments use dual-use technologies uh, as tools of first resort for political warfare. So an example might be if a country only has high-yield nuclear weapons, Uh, to advance its interests, its only choices are either total annihilation or complete inaction. And so high-yield nuclear weapons on a day-to-day basis are not that practically usable. On the other hand, if you have very potent cyber weapons, those allow you to conduct very effective uh, attacks on an adversary that are high impact and very hard to attribute and provide you with a potential veil of deniability, which helps you as a perpetrator avoid the costs of the potential costs of retaliation and therefore they're highly usable. And so that's why we've seen increasingly gray zone conflict become a pervasive and predominant feature in international politics. That makes a lot of sense. Talk about what comprises your, your proactive agenda. So the, my proactive agenda is really to encourage a healthy debate on a lot of big assumptions we've made uh, in the foreign policy community and um, as a society that haven't been revisited for a while. The foreign policy community seems to have coalesced over the last couple of years around this notion that we are in a competition with China. I uh, would like us as a community to revisit that and double click on Why are we calling it a competition as opposed to a war? I think that the term war, even though it sounds aggressive and a little bit intimidating to a lot of people, I think it's actually more apt and accurate to describe the current struggle that we're in. And uh, and obviously there are a lot of, you know, if we do accept uh, from a first principles level, the basic proposition that war is not binary, it's a spectrum. Uh, The current struggle that we're in with China is about the political survival of our system. Uh, It's about, it requires urgent action. It requires comprehensive prioritization of our uh, policies, domestic and foreign, around the objective of producing a successful outcome to this struggle. I think we need, there are a lot of tactical, more downstream implications that we need to take stock of. And a number of the recommendations that I make in the book include having a framework like an outbound CFIUS framework, uh, deglobalizing China's authoritarian internet, um, as well as reshoring and encouraging the reindustrialization of the free world. Talk about the implications for for big tech. Let, let's say that we, you know, we 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 use the sort of the the war framework and and we were aligned on that. Uh, talk talk more about the implications for for big tech and and beyond. So I think that's such an important point that so often um, gets lost in the current debate. Obviously, big tech companies, a number of them have made the argument as of late that antitrust action, it's, it's, first of all, it's impossible to talk about this geopolitical struggle with China and big tech without talking about antitrust. Um, obviously, a lot of big tech companies have made the argument don't break, break us up because if you do, it'll make the country less competitive vis-a-vis China. That has been uh, a lot of people in policy circles in Washington have pushed back on that argument quite a bit and have retorted, oh, actually, the, the, what will help us with China is if we're more competitive at home and therefore if we break you up, uh, we will have more domestic competition and therefore we'll be more competitive with China. I really don't buy that argument because uh, I believe in 
uh, data. And I'm very open. You know, I think everyone should be open to um, absorbing data points and and you know uh, following the 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 data where the evidence where it leads. And if you look at the data in. It, Antitrust is based on the basic idea that you have a market participant that is abusing a dominant position in the marketplace and inflicting consumer harm, harm to, to consumers. So if you ask yourself, let's look at the supply and the demand side of the market. On the supply side, in 2019 and in 2020, there has been over, over 10,000 venture capital investment deals that have taken place uh, worth a cumulative over $139 billion. To me, that's not symptomatic. That is not evidence of an uncompetitive marketplace. That doesn't tell me that. Uh, I, I find it hard to take that data point and conclude that people are too afraid to start companies because of Google, Apple, and Facebook. Um, I would love to kind of hear you know, uh, counter data points, but I don't think that Congress is um, really taking into account the full picture about the fact that there is lots and lots of competition in the marketplace and the high levels of valuations that we're seeing in the startup community does not tell me that people are afraid or uh, dovish on the ability of new entrants to compete. Um, on, on the, you know, and just to add one more example, Shopify obviously in the last six years has gone from 1 billion valuation to over $180 billion valuation. And that's a direct competitor to Amazon doesn't tell me that you know it's impossible for anyone to compete with Amazon. Um, on the demand side of the market, I would love to know what the consumer harm is because obviously a lot of these products are free. So if you don't have a lack of competition on the supply side, and if you don't have consumer harm, harm on the demand side, I have a really hard time seeing what the antitrust argument is uh, for breaking them up. So then let's talk about how, why does this care? Uh, why do we care about this in the context with China? So we part of what I discuss in the book is the back-end struggle of the Gray War, which involves a lot of very capital-intensive investments in physical internet infrastructure, which takes a lot of money. When you look at, it takes a lot of engineering power and a lot of money. When you look at who are the players today making the kinds of big investments in the United States into submarine fiber optic cables, a lot of the a non-trivial fraction of those players are Google and Facebook and the big tech companies. So I have a little bit of a hard time seeing how uh, kneecapping these companies is going to help us somehow be more competitive with companies like Huawei and ZTE that receive $75 billion in state subsidies, number one. Number two, when we look at history, General Motors was obviously an instrumental player in the rearmament effort in the lead up of World War II. And they embraced the motto, victory is our business. And obviously that was a very clear sighted, you know, uh, for them, it was clear whose side they were on. They weren't ambiguous. They were on the side of the US government. They were gonna help in the war effort. And, you know, they had very, uh, uh, it was a, an obvious act of patriotism. And I think that uh, today we very much need the same spirit and President Roosevelt, during in the years leading up to uh, World War II, actually issued an executive order suspending DOJ's uh, the DOJ's uh, pending investigations uh, of antitrust uh, abuse practices in the automobile industry. So that is a precedent for a very very progressive president prioritizing the war effort recognizing that we need companies to be on our side to be collaborative with national security a national security agenda set by the US government in order to be successful and to hit pause on uh, litigious domestic disputes related to antitrust yeah it's, it's it's really interesting I mean a lot of people want antitrust especially especially as it relates to Facebook you know some liberals want it because they think it helped elect Trump or because you know um, you know the, the depression, you know crisis or something that, that's happening. Uh, Republicans want it because they're being censored, and 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 we're talking about here in the context of, hey, these companies aren't being patriotic, and in fact they're they're helping China and and, and not helping uh, the the U.S. Yeah, and I mean, um, yeah, I think the thrust of the issue obviously is it's very important. I think I mean one of the criticisms that I level at 
you know, at big tech companies is a certain sense of detachment. The fact that a lot of tech companies, I think over the years have become accustomed to thinking of, of themselves as global companies before being American companies. And I think that fundamentally, uh, I think that's a little bit detached from reality. We live in a world that has countries, those countries are run by governments. You know, these this country is the United States. These companies are American. They're headquartered. They were founded by, you know, American uh, uh, founders for the most part. And, uh, and, you know, they operate on an open and free internet, which is the, the direct result of uh, America's foreign policy abroad uh, that has been, you know, very deliberately pushing for things like internet freedom. And so I think it's kind of, it's, uh, I don't think there's ever been an act of nefarious, like it's not out of nefariousness that these companies, you know, uh, shy away from helping the US government sometimes. But I think it's, you know, there's a lot of idealism. And I think that for a number of years, some companies have been drinking their own Kool-Aid a little bit, uh, thinking of themselves as quasi-sovereigns. And uh, some of them have hired, you know, as I talk about in the book, some of them have hired um professionals that are basically meant to act as an in-house foreign policy team for the yeah. for you know the company which i just think is misguided i mean foreign policy decisions should be made by foreign policy professionals and companies should build products and uh produce returns for investors because that's what they're meant to do they're not meant to create global you know uh non-proliferation treaties but isn't um isn't that one of the challenges though that they're just operating in their because again, they say, "Hey, it's in our, you know, we're meant to build, make profits. It's, you know, it's in our financial interest to 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 work with China. What, what, what's the problem there?" You, you talk about this in, in the book. T- talk about how your experience at, at Google sort of, you know, what lessons you you, you took from it. Well, um, I I can't comment uh, about specifics, uh, internal specifics about Google, but uh, I'm happy to talk about to discuss, you know, general patterns in the tech industry, and I think that. As I write in the book and I've written in for foreign policy, I think that part of the challenge is that uh, there is a certain short-termism that has short-term thinking that has led some companies to uh, try to experiment having what I call one company, two systems, where China is such a big market. In the short term, they you know a lot of companies see an opportunity to. Uh, actually make money in the Chinese market. And a lot of companies get excited very fast about the idea of being, yeah, we know that a lot of other companies have tried to enter China and have tripped over, but we're going to do it right. We're going to hire the right people and the right CCP insiders, and we're somehow going to be different and get access to the Chinese market. And case after case, American companies tend to fall over themselves because um, uh, they they don't get a fair shake in China because the Chinese government has a very clear agenda, and the, and it will never allow a foreign, especially an American tech company, to have any kind of market significance in China. And the recent you know array of data security, privacy, and national intelligence laws that the Chinese government has passed has made that very very clear. And so I think that. Um, in the long term, even though in the short term, it might seem like it's in a company's interest to do business in China, in the long term, it is in no American company's interest. And is it is not in the interest of any company that operates, that is headquartered in a democratic system uh, to want to see a world where China writes the rules. Because when China writes the rules, American companies don't win. That is pretty much uh, the a reliable pattern. Uh, and so, and so, I think in the long in the long term, it's very much in the interest of American companies to want to see an open, free, and fair global marketplace. It, it expand a little bit on on what China wants exactly, um, because uh, you sort of get a sense for what U.S. wanted at a certain period of time, which was to you know encourage the rest of the world to be more like the U.S., more you know liberal democracies. What, what does China want? What should we understand better uh, there? China wants, in a way, uh, something that the U.S. wants a world that's safe for democracy. We want a world that's safe for capitalism and democracy. China wants a world that is safe for the CCP. 
So it's really that simple. And so everything kind of flows back from that. A world that is predominantly dominated by democracies, by democracies is very threatening to China because the whole concept of democracy is premised on the idea that rule by a single person, rules issued by a single person of authority is are illegitimate. If you are an autocrat and you, and you live in a country where the laws are simply the expression of the will of a single person, citizens of a democratic system would look at that and view that rightfully so as a set of illegitimate laws. Uh, and it, what makes our laws legitimate you know, from our vantage point, is that our laws are, are, are the product of a process of due process. We have an independent legislature, an independent judiciary. Uh, we have an executive branch that uh, implements the laws. We have a free press that actually scrutinizes the laws. So we have a system and a process that has decentralized and distributed, you know, power. Uh, and checks and balances. And so, you know, if, if, if the world is uh, predominantly dominated by systems that view autocratic rule as illegitimate, that is a world that is very unfriendly to the CCP and the CCP knows that. And so it's therefore in their uh, interest to discredit democracy, discourage democracy and make the world safer for the CCP. Well, that makes sense. What is the right way to think about China's balance between capitalism and, and, and communism or, or sort of nationalist socialism? Well, I think that for a long time, you know, we all, we kind of gave China a pass politically on the lack of political freedoms because we in the West uh, were, you know, wanted to believe and were led to believe that China was moving in the right direction. It was liberalizing its economy it was moving towards a much more market-based approach. And, you know, a lot of people would be getting excited saying, yeah, China is a system that is capitalistic, but it's with Chinese characteristics. And therefore we need to give them a pass on Chinese on the Chinese characteristics part, because overall they are moving in the more capitalist, uh, you know, people would focus on the capitalist and de-emphasize the Chinese characteristics part of the equation. And so we kind of gave them a pass on the fact that, yeah, they're not that, you know, politically liberal, but, uh, you know, it's possible to do business there. Uh, and what we've seen is actually delinking our the political objectives of our foreign policy from our economic policy has actually been a bit of a miscalculation. And so now I think the chickens are coming host, home to roost because, um, Obviously, we find ourselves in a position where we are very economically intertwined with China. China is working aggressively to decouple from us. And so the last thing we should want is for us to be reliant on them uh, when they are no longer reliant on us. We need to, we should absolutely be working to unwind our economic reliance on them because. Um, the last thing we need as a country is for our economic security to be held at gunpoint uh, by a government that is very antagonistic to much of what we stand for. So what I'm hearing from you and what I understand is that the, the last few decades, um, the U.S. has really been asleep at the wheel, both um, in terms of uh, how deferential we've been in sort of, you know, trade um, sort of, you know, with the WTO um, and also in terms of how our, um, you know, corporations have, uh, uh, big companies have handled, handled China. And was it just that China was doing these head fakes or, you know, what, what did we miss? Were, were they just you know, doing the right things, but they were, they were fake or did they change their minds or how did this play out? Well, I think it's a combination of the above. I think, you know, for a while things did seem like they were moving in the right direction. We had also developed a lot of uh, intellectual theories about rationalizing, uh, you know, with slightly misguided rationalizations. Like for example, one of those theories was that, we over-indexed on economics. So one of the theories was if they liberalize their markets, eventually their political system will follow. You know, this was the Starbucks and McDonald's theory of, you know, if, if they have a lot of um, free market, you know, free enterprise principles, eventually they're going to have a middle class that's going to demand more political freedoms. And therefore we should just kind of let that natural process unfold. 
Uh, and we don't really need to uh, be too worried in the short term about the lack of uh, how illiberal they are. And that just proves to be a miscalculation, um, especially given the fact that when Xi Jinping came into office, he obviously embarked on a significant consolidation of power. He went on an anti-corruption campaign, which was basically a thinly veiled attack on on a lot of his um, uh, ad, you know political internal adversaries. And so, I mean, it's a combination of the fact that they were moving in the right direction until they weren't. And we also uh, were far too optimistic about uh, and, and far too confident about, you know, the fact that uh, we fell for the fact that they said, you know, they were a peaceful power. They said that they were going to do a peaceful rise. They um, said uh, they pushed a lot of narratives that we were far too quick to buy into and none of them panned out. I want to talk about the rest of the the geopolitical chessboard here. Uh, maybe let's start with their uh, China's One Belt One Road Initiative. Um, how, wh- why does that matter, and and how how should we think about that? Well, the One Belt One Road Initiative uh, is uh, is a global project that aims at um, allowing China to basically establish the foundations of a Chinese centric trading system that includes obviously the physical circulation of goods, but it also includes, uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's what they call the digital Silk Road, which includes the establishment of satellites and fiber optic cables. And and so we should be concerned by that in the sense that it could potentially allow China to, I mean, if they're successful, it would basically be laying the foundation for an an alternative order, uh, a Chinese-centric order, you know, trade order uh, that, you know, would basically be uh, competitive to the current order that we have today uh, in terms of trading system and, you know, the architecture of um, flows of information. And so it's, it's obviously pretty concerning, but it's, it's still very much in its earlier stages. Uh, A lot of countries and a lot of governments um, that, uh, were meant to be recipients of um, of Belt and Road investments are now now growing more skeptical because China is quickly gaining a reputation for uh, turning these investments into fairly predatory, uh, pred- you know, predatory types of opportunistic investments to basically seize uh, seize assets abroad. So, for example, they will, you know. Uh, they'll approach the Sri Lankan government and completely hypothetically uh, and offer to build an infrastructure project uh, funded with Chinese loans built by Chinese labor. And all of a sudden the Sri Lankan government finds itself with uh, contracting bills that are far in excess of what was initially discussed and agreed upon. They can't pay it back. And China just, seizes ownership and takes possession of the project. So it has a a neo-colonialistic quality to it that a lot of governments are catching on to and I think growing pretty skeptical of. Yeah. It is interesting. um, Like anything that has a neo-colonialist sort of even a a tinge of that, it feels like the U.S. would, couldn't be accused of that, you know, lest it, you know, faced a lot of internal criticism. And it, it just seems that the U.S. is scared to do a lot of stuff that China does with no compunctions. And, and I think that we could be doing similar things, but I think we have an opportunity to do these things in a way that's much more earnest, where we actually help genuinely and authentically help empower local populations. Because fundamentally, I mean, one of the beauties of the American system is that China is all about centralization. And for them, you know, they they like having centralized control. For us, we we feel safe when other countries are democratic. And so we don't have to be controlling other countries, but simply knowing that other countries are operating along uh, similar, you know, uh, d- distributions of power. And so 
the I think the American system is mu- is inherently much much more comfortable with a decentralized approach to partnerships. So, you know, one of the ideas that I talk about in the book is actually rethinking how we define foreign aid and including in our foreign aid programs information infrastructure as a way to push back on the Chinese internet, but also as a way to uh, help empower local populations with information infrastructure that is not going to be constantly compromised uh, by you know a, uh, a centralized foreign um, foreign power, and, and and say more about what that uh, information infrastructure could look like. Well, it's uh, in terms of the actual. Pro- I mean, a lot of it would basically be fiber optic cables and satellites. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there would probably also. I mean, for more urban areas, it would probably make sense to include five G systems, um, but it would basically be about. Uh, the physical infrastructure that allows and powers information networks. So, you know, that in rural areas, satellites would make a lot of sense to connect distant geographies, fiber optic cables would make a lot of sense. And for urban areas, 5G networks would make a lot of sense. Yeah. The um, speaking of different, more differences between the U S and, and China um, let's talk about uh, culture. Cause we're seeing, um, China be much more heavy-handed recently in terms of regulating culture. Uh, I believe they limited video games, um, and I believe they're getting involved in, um, you know, sort of um, certain types of characters, and and you know, uh, particularly around around men um, and um, in, in discriminatory practices there. And I, I heard uh, a while ago that they had gotten involved in in Hollywood in some capacity, or, or getting involved in studios and preventing uh, any sort of um, you know, Chinese characters from being seen as villains. Um, to t- talk a little bit about the, just the, the, how the CCP is, has thought about culture. So it's fascinating how uh, the CCP has been exporting extraterritorially. It's um, in very subtle ways, a lot of its propaganda narratives. And so some examples that thanks to a lot of really great investigative journalism, that we have, you know, come to be aware about publicly is um, the Chinese government trying to basically in, uh, entice Hollywood studios to include scenes in movies that portray China as the future, for example, um, or that uh, depict, you know, the flaws in American society, the greed, the decay, the decadence, and. And so it's really, it's very, very subtle and uh, it's obviously incredibly nefarious in intent. And, but the Chinese government has been incredibly effective at encouraging our entertainment industry to um, comply with these, uh, with uh, these narratives. And I think it really just kind of highlights that if we don't want a subversion of our free speech here at home, um, we really need to rethink uh, the ability of uh, our companies, the parameters uh, under, under which our companies are allowed and not allowed to do business in China, because that is one of the levers that the Chinese government uses. Market access is one of the levers that the Chinese government uses to try to arm twist and entice companies to comply with a lot of their propaganda uh, narratives. Speaking of signaling a little bit, uh, talk about Taiwan, and, and and many Americans may not understand why that matters so much. Talk about what, 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 what's at stake there. Taiwan is an island whose jurisdiction is obviously contested, but you know is self-governed, governed autonomously by a democratic government. Uh, it has been an example, a global example of an incredibly vibrant economically dynamic and very successful democracy. Uh, It has managed the pandemic exceptionally well. And uh, Beijing also views Taiwan as uh, a province, a Chinese province, a breakaway province. And it's important to know that, first of all, we uh, accepted a one China policy, you know, back in the 70s, uh, in the context of the Cold War, but 
for strategic reasons for competition with the Soviet Union, but Taiwan and China have never, at no point have Taiwan and China been ruled uh, by a single mutually recognized political authority. So, you know, I think that's an important information for context before, uh, you know, before we kind of discuss uh, what, you know, the legitimate claims of the Chinese government are over Taiwan. The second is obviously Taiwan happens to be home to uh, a lot of American interests, particularly with respect to semiconductors, with respect to uh, the uh, passage of um, it, it is a, the Taiwan Strait is a major corridor of submarine fiber optic internet cables that connect North America and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it is also uh, uh, an incredibly important um, precedent in terms of when we think about whether or not we want to allow the Chinese government to seize, you know, a, what is effectively a self-governed territory. Uh, to, to to annex uh, and annex that territory, that is going to set a, a very very important precedent for the other seventeen uh, territorial claims that China claims with its neighbors. Um, the Senkaku Islands are an example. Its border disputes with India are another example. But it's also gonna it also exposes the risk of spillage. With uh, it could set a precedent for. Russia deciding to uh, invade Ukraine. So it's precedent, uh, submarine cables, semiconductors, for a lot of different reasons. It's very, very important for American foreign policy thinkers to think really closely about whether and how uh, we would respond in the event of a Chinese invasion of the island. Yeah. And um, how do you think that could, could play out? Well, if you listen to the Taiwan's Minister of Defense, it sounds like they believe that China could carry out uh, an attempted invasion of the island in the next 24 months, which is pretty scary. And and and, and do you think the U.S. would, or how, how would the U.S. respond? It's still a little bit unclear. I I feel very encouraged by the fact that uh, the AUKUS deal that the U.S. just signed with the U.K. and Australia, I think, should be cause for optimism that. Uh, obviously, Australia, you know, gaining access to eight nuclear-powered submarines is going to help beef up our deterrence in the region. But as we've seen over the last week, what China is doing in that region also includes joint military drills with Russia. So I think for the U.S., you know, one of the reasons that I keep stressing that we need to really call this, comp- you know, this geopolitical struggle a war is because if we don't deal with this with the level of urgency that it requires, the Great War could conceivably turn into a hot war, which would probably be one of the biggest human catastrophes of this century. When we think about what the impact of a great of a war between great powers might have with all of today's modern technologies, it could have such serious impact in terms of a cyber attack on a nuclear power plant, uh, cutting out power in cities, and that's before you get to the launching of hypersonic missiles and you know all of the all of the new gadgets and bells and whistles that government ha- that governments have at their disposal today. War would be unlike anything the world has ever experienced. And so the question is, how do we prevent that war from taking place? And I think that, you know, the, uh, there are, there's the camp of those that argue that preventing, you know, that the path to preventing a war is diplomacy and talking and sitting at a table. And those that are that those that would be of the mind that, um, that, you know, we've tried talking, we've tried sitting at a table. Uh, it's got us a military buildup and a Navy of 350 Chinese ships and joint military drills with Russia. And so, you know, the, the logical conclusion should be that what, what will the best path to preventing that war will be increasing our own capacity to fight back in order to change the strategic calculation of the Chinese. And so I fall in the camp that at this point in time, our best path to preventing a war is making the Chinese believe that a war would be 
uh, to their disadvantage and changing their strategic calculation. So the points you said all, all, all make sense. And is the concern here that that Taiwan could be sort of the Prince Ferdinand moment that, that would start the hot war? Or, or is there's something else more likely to uh, to do that? It, well, with the information that we have today, it certainly seems like Taiwan could absolutely be uh, a Prince Ferdinand moment. With that, the interesting thing is that because China is conducting joint military drills with Russia, I think it also raises a lot of questions as to, you know, is there a potential imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine that's also, you know, brewing beneath the surface? It's important to remember that it has been, and I talk about this in the book, it is a very, it has become a standard practice for these autocratic powers to uh, make strategic maneuvers in a manner that is a fait accompli, uh, which is they hide it, they conceal it, and then they just do it. And we wake up the morning after dealing with the aftermath. And that's, you know, dials back to my initial point that it's really important for us to stop being reactive to these events. We see the military drills, we see the military buildup. We need to be much more proactive in preventing a Russian invasion of Ukraine. We need to be much, much more proactive in stopping a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. These The preparations for these strategic maneuvers are taking place in plain sight. We see them every day. I think the, it's, it's now incumbent upon us to actually believe them and take their word for it that these drills you know, are not just uh, routine or you know, uh, saber rattling, but that they are actually, they, that they do actually amount to real preparations. And so we need to draw the logical conclusions from that and counter those preparations with our own. Our preparations ultimately should necessarily be based upon their preparations. And, you know, we are unfortunately a little bit behind at this point. And do you think Biden is is doing enough or, or, or what should he be doing? Well, I think he's doing directionally. I think he's doing the right things. I mean, I think uh, getting our allies on board is incredibly important. I mean, let's not forget that one of the biggest success stories that our country has had is World War II, and we didn't fight that war alone. We had a grand alliance. So, I think that ultimately dealing with the Russians and the Chinese combined, we're going to need allies. I mean, if we really want to be successful, which we can, I think we absolutely can be successful. The, the our path to success isn't going to be America fighting a two-front war in the Atlantic and the Pacific alone. We need allies. Uh, so, you know, that is absolutely a positive uh, initiative that President Biden has done, has been really uh, working hard to shore, shore up allied support. With that being said, uh, you know, I call this a war and not a competition, which is a difference that I, a philosophical difference that I have with many people that currently serve in the administration, as well as many people in the foreign policy community. And one of the reasons that I call it a war is because I do think that one of the things that we need to change is we need to be going much faster. So, you know, obviously I know that it's easier said than done, but we don't have time to spend six months planning, uh, you know, planning to plan to talk to plan a summit. We need to uh, have you know meetings tomorrow and prioritize this uh, and rank this as the number one issue in our conversations with all of our allies to make it clear that this is the thing. This is our overarching priority that we are interested in pushing. And uh, and then because unfortunately, right now time is not on our side. Um. To better understand sort of China's situation, let, let's talk about the, uh, the, you know, assuming nothing different, uh, drastically different happens. Let's talk about sort of the bull case and bear case as, as we see it. What I understand from the bear case that people say is, hey, um, you know, China has demographic problems. It has energy problems. I think it gets, you know, I don't know if it's 25% or, or some large amount from the Persian Gulf. And if the U.S., you know, Peter Zahan's thesis is that the U.S. retreats, um, then, then, you know, they're not going to those trade routes are not protected and it's going to lose a lot of energy and not be able to feed its people. Um, also, you know, people talk about the credit crisis in China. So these are sort of some understandings as I, about the bear, uh, bear, bear case. And then the bull case is, you know, Hey, China's uh, got a lot of people, a lot of smart people and aligned culture, a uh, very effective government and is really uh, advanced 
tech, technologically. How would you comment or edit or add to sort of the the bear case or or, or bull case uh, from a pure you know observational perspective? The bull case, ninety nine percent of the time, dials back to a single data point, which is that there are one point four billion people. And therefore, if their GDP per capita reached a level that was comparable to the U.S., their economy would be absolutely astronomical. And so, I think that is kind of the talking point that a lot of people, you know, that drives a lot of people to be discouraged. Uh, and by the way, the Chinese government has been very uh, deliberately trying to push that narrative to encourage other countries to. Uh, accommodate China rather than to even try to push back. You know, basically the narrative is: don't even try to contain us. Don't even try to counter us. Uh, it's going to be impossible. We're 1.4 billion people. Our rise is unstoppable, and therefore you're much better off just you know being friends with us and accommodating our rise. That's kind of the basic narrative. The bear case and the problem is first of all, as you point out, they have a real demographic problem. Their population is aging faster than Japan's. It is one of the fastest aging populations in the world. And the reason that that is significant is because it is going to be really hard for them to, to sustain the same level of economic output in a world where uh, they have a uh, workforce that is shrinking. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. But it's obviously one of the characteristics with China is that they misrepresent a lot of their data. And if anything, like it's very, very hard for people to verify, you know, the, the veracity of uh, statistics published by the Chinese government. So uh, may, there may, you know, they, they might experience the Chinese recession. They might not. We may never know about it because they may fudge a lot of their numbers. I mean, according to their statistics, they had very low levels of coronavirus infections and fatalities, but you know, then again, uh, I you know, I personally find that hard to believe. I think any public health expert would find that very hard to believe, given that's where the coronavirus pandemic started. I do think that the biggest uh, underdiscussed bear case for China is the fact that they can have, you know, all the tanks, all the airplanes, and. Uh, all the soldiers that you know that they uh, that they can build, but at the end of the day, Xi Jinping and one one of the things that we see is they are very very afraid of thoughts and words, and I think that is just so revelatory of uh, the fact of a core Achilles heel in their system. I don't know that you know a, a system can sustain itself forever that is based on the suppression of instincts that are fundamental to human nature. People want to be able to express themselves and think. And I think that is what makes us human. And so a system that's entirely based on the suppression of that, I don't know how long that can last. And that is also why I think that fundamentally, at the end of the day, this is about more than just an American flag versus a Chinese flag, but it's about ideas about how people should be able to live their lives. And, you know, America ultimately, I think, is on the right side of this equation and on the right side of history. And what's at stake is something that's much bigger than just the U.S., but it's the ideas that the U.S. has been a vehicle for. Yeah. And, and, and gearing towards closing here, your, 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 your call to action really is to deglobalize China's expanding authoritarian internet and while forming an opposing democratic techno bloc with, with its closest friends. Um, uh, uh, sort of tie a bow on, on all this and, and, and maybe we'll get to the question of who, who do we really need to make sure that we ally with and who's a, you know, a pivotal sort of, um, you know, dark horse, you know, a wild, wild card player that we need to keep in check. I, I, so, I mean, I think you, you um, expressed it perfectly. I think deglobalizing China's authoritarian internet, uh, make sure that we're consolidating our open and free internet. I think that today the choice isn't so much about whether the internet is totally closed or totally open. It's not about whether the internet is closed or open. It's about whether the internet is democratic or authoritarian. And so I think that, you know, in that vein, we should be pushing to roll back China's authoritarian internet and push our democratic internet with our allies and form and consolidate 
an opposing techno, you know, what I call techno block. And so obviously working really closely with our allies uh, to contain China in the in cyberspace should be a major priority uh, for the, that for the protection of national sovereignty of our allies as well as the protection of an open and free internet and open and free markets. Totally, and and this should be a a, a bipartisan you know issue here. Talk about where. And, and, and it is to some extent, right? Talk, talk about where, you know, sort of citizen, American citizen sentiment is uh, on, on China right now and how that's evolving. Well, Americans by margins of over two thirds, I think it's 81% last I checked by Pew Research, support a much stronger and much more principled approach to China. I think, you know, the foreign policy community, the reason that you're seeing bipartisan support on this issue in Congress uh, and across the Trump administration and the Biden administration is not because politicians, Congress is usually a pretty accurate reflection of where public sentiment is. And the the American public is overwhelmingly decisive on this issue where the, they want much, a, a foreign policy that is much more responsive to a lot of the issues that we've had in our bilateral relationship with China. They want answers to IP theft. They want answers to deindustrialization. They want answers on illicit flows of fentanyl, on uh, you know uh, cyber attacks that are taking place, on human rights abuses uh, in China that uh, you know China is looking to export you know through exporting authoritarian practices. And so I think that you're seeing the government being much more responsive to that, which I think is a good thing. Um, I just want to dial back to one of the initial questions that you asked in terms of. Uh, who you know internationally could potentially be a wild card, and I think that ultimately a lot of our Pacific partners are pretty much on board. Even though obviously you know as I expressed earlier, we should be moving much faster. I do think that in Europe we really need to work hard to get the Germans on board because they have obviously been pretty slow to adopt a lot of. Um, uh, policies that are in line with their values and our shared values. I think part of what Germany struggles with is they sell a lot of cars to China. And so for them, the automobile industry is a major domestic industry that, uh, you know, has where there is a lot of jobs and capital at stake. But at the end of the day, Germany has spent so much time and energy talking about, you know, never again, we are going to stand with ge- genocide. And, uh, and you know, the, the, a lot of the moral values uh, that have emerged out of such a painful national history of, you know, first Nazi Germany, and then obviously half of the country being occupied by, by the Soviet Union and, and governed by, with the Stasi uh, uh, secret police. And so, you know, I think in our exchanges with the Germans, reminding them that at the end of the day, these shared values that we share with them, our attachment to civil liberties and uh, personal and individual freedoms should really supersede short-term interests with respect to selling automobiles to China, uh, I think is going to be really key to get them to embrace uh, a more principled approach. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that there is a whole new generation of policy thinkers in Berlin that are actually much more embracive of a stronger stance on China. That's a uh, a good place uh, place to 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 wrap. Um, my guest has been Jacob Helberg. The book is "The Wires of War: Technology and the Global Struggle for Power." Uh, Jacob, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Eric, it's always a pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.